Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 10. We've crossed over into a new chapter. We're continuing to work our way through the, through the book of Acts. And so we're going to be looking this morning at Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. Before I begin this morning, I just want to return to uh, the account of the Konyes, which, which uh, Tyler was explaining to everyone. We are looking for letters of support for anyone who knows the Konyes. Uh, for those of you who are guests or first-time visitors with us, you may not be aware of this, but we have a family in our church, the Konyes, whom we're referring to, who are from the African country of Nigeria. And uh, for the last two years, we have uh, struggled with them in prayer and uh, labored alongside of them to help them secure a visa here uh, in Canada. The reason being that if they were to go back to Nigeria, they would face um, persecution, religious persecution, and their children would also be subjected to uh, what is referred to as FGM, female genital mutilation. It's a tribal practice uh, that is commonly practiced in, in that part of the world. Uh, there's no actual medical benefits to it. It is extremely painful. But being, in, being from a culture that um, is built on shame and honor, uh, it is understood for the Konye family, uh, particularly Everest, the firstborn son of his home, that by not continuing these traditions, he has shamed uh, his mother and his father. And and since it is a culture largely built on honor, uh, that shame is um, it's unbearable. And so they, they, do seek, they do seek to physically harm, if not kill, uh, Everett and they, Everest, and they would also seek to, to force the children uh, to, to succumb to this, this procedure. And so as a result of this, the Konyes being Christians and trusting in the Lord, uh, they, they don't wish to, to go back to that, at that place and, and to be subjected to those types of tortures. So we've been with them for the last year, last two years praying and working. Uh, and they, were, they received a notice uh, two weeks ago saying that they had to be out on Friday, the 13th. Uh, this last Friday was their deportation date. And we'd gone through and looked at the paperwork, and we'd had lawyers that had been involved, immigration lawyers that had said different things and filled out different forms and, and all of this. And, and uh, we received this notification that they had to leave the country uh, by Friday, and of course that that was just a heartbreaking thing. Uh, we were looking at the paperwork and all the odds and ends that had gone into everything, and we were, I think, slowly just coming to the, just trying to wrestle with what would be the best course of action for the Konyes. Would it be better for them to leave and honor this deportation order because they could come right back? Would it be better for them to stay? You know, what actually helps them expedite this application? And of course. We were all praying as a church. They went down on Wednesday. James, uh, our chairman of the deacons, James Casson, went down with Pastor Al with the Konyes to uh, appeal in person uh, on Wednesday. And, uh, of course, there was a lot of discussion that had been going back and forth. And as many of you were on our, we were all on our knees in prayer and asking the Lord to work a miracle. My own personal prayer was that the Lord would grant favor in the eyes of the immigration officials who were looking at all of this. Uh, but at any rate, they, they were sitting there talking, and they said, we'd like to appeal. We have a, a deportation order. And this is where the miracle comes out. They said, we have a deportation order here for them to leave by Friday. And the immigration official says, okay, give me their legal names. He's typing on the keyboard into his computer, looking up the file. He says, I'm sorry, you say you have a deportation order? And of course, yes, that's why we're all freaking out, right? We have an order. Um, they have to leave the country by Friday. So the Pastor Al James said, yes, they have a deportation order. They're supposed to be out by Friday. So more on the keyboard. Says, I'll be right back. Goes back into the back room looking for whatever. Comes back and says, I don't have a deportation order for them. 
Amen. Now, at this moment in time, I would have been tempted to say, thank you very much, shake your hand, I'm turning on my heel and I'm walking away. But Pastor Alan James are obviously much better men than me. So they turned at the request, of course, of the official to, to Rosalind, who was there with her you know, two-inch thick three-ring binder full of uh, government paperwork, says, do you have a copy of the deportation order? Because we'd like to see it if you have it. So she begins to thumb through all of her, you know, multiple pages, hundreds of pages of different things. And lo and behold, she can't find a copy of the deportation order either. Now, the world will look at this and say, ah, it's just a giant coincidence. You thought you had to be out by Friday the 13th. You, you, you mistakenly thought you had to leave by Friday the 13th. And then when it really comes down to it, there's no actual deportation order, and you don't have to leave, and it's all just a giant coincidence and a misunderstanding. But church, I'm here to tell you, we're not that stupid. (laughs) We can read paperwork, and uh, there was, in fact, a form that had said they need to leave by Friday. And praise the Lord, that form disappeared into complete non-existence. Normally, I would say that was because I put it in a shredder, but no, this is a supernatural, this was supernatural, this was the Lord. And so we do need to praise the Father in heaven. Um, They have absolutely, they have no deportation order. However, they have still overstayed their original visa. And so... Uh, The instructions we received from the officials on Wednesday was that uh, they are advised to leave the country within 30 days because they have overstayed their their visa. But at this point in time, we are free to file an appeal, which is uh, what Pastor Al is requesting, uh, what uh, Tyler had mentioned earlier. Uh, They have initially come in under what is known as a skilled worker visa. And so they have overstayed their welcome in terms of the skilled worker visa. Uh, Everest originally came on a student visa, and so he is now allowed to stay. He's got he's received he's working on a skilled worker visa for a permanent residency in Canada. However, Rosalind and the children do not have any such uh, protections afforded to them. However, they are now free to appeal to file a new application under what Tyler had mentioned to you previously. It's what's known as a humanitarian compassion. Uh, compassionate aid visa. And so given their circumstances of what awaits them back in Nigeria, uh, we feel very confident that uh, this this visa will be received and approved. And we just continue to pray in the Lord. They're not pray to the Lord and trust in the Lord. They're not out of the woods yet, uh, but we cannot deny that a miracle took place this last week. And so uh, we'd encourage you, for those of you who are familiar with the Konyes and understand their situation, and obviously, we all know just what incredible, upstanding people they are with what a positive contribution they've made here to our, to our church. And so for those of you who know the Konyes, we just ask uh, that you would write a letter of support. Their, their legal names are really long and hard to spell, and so you do have to write the form on their behalf using their proper legal name. So all that, all that paperwork is out there in the foyer on the credenza, and so we ask that you get those back in uh, by Wednesday so we can file our, our paperwork by Friday. So just want to make, make mention of that to you one more time. Now to remind you of where we're at in the text, we have just concluded 
Acts chapter 9, obviously the conversion of Saul and then just the ministry, the healing ministry of Peter at the tail end of chapter 9. We come now to this account of the conversion of Cornelius. Just to remind you where we're at, I'm going to read the text and then we will, we will pray and we'll get to work. So if you would, look at me, chapter 10, uh, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is also called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, uh, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning as we consider the reward of Cornelius, how you showed favor to this, this Gentile uh, soldier in the Roman army, Father, we pray that you would remind us from your word once again that though your grace knows no limit, that your salvation can reach to all mankind. Help us to be reminded, Lord, that your favor does indeed rest upon the righteous. Lord, we pray you'd impress that on our hearts this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We are much impressed, excuse me, we are much impressed when men who are very, very, very bad are wonderfully converted and saved miraculously. We are much impressed when a vile and a wicked man turns away from his villainy, from his evil, and he becomes a Christian. These things tend to stand out to us. Uh, We are impressed from the scriptures by the prodigal son who obviously fled from home and basically on his way out the door told his dad, you know, give me everything that's coming to me when you die. I just want it now so I can go. And he goes, and of course, uh, living in profligate you know, lifestyle and, and having wasted all of what his father had given to him, he, he converts, he returns home, he's reconciled with his father. We're impressed by those stories. And there are many of them. Um, we feel that there is a cause of rejoicing, particularly just having moved from Acts chapter 9, in terms of the conversion of Saul from Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, to the, the greatest preacher of the faith that he was, he was trying to destroy. And we, we read these encounters and we think, that is marvelous. Christ saves and can save anyone, no matter how far they are gone, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil. We hear these encounters, and we have individuals who travel who give testimonies, and time and again we hear stories of individuals, even in the present day, who've gone down this path of evil, who have gone so far beyond the pale, and yet Christ has come to them, and he has rescued them, and he has brought them back. These stories so impress us, that many of us, myself included, if we just have an ordinary story of I was raised in a Christian home and I gave my life to Christ when I was a kid and here I am. No wild living, no, no crazy backslidden years in which I went off the deep end. You know, we don't have any kind of that exciting sort of story. And, and so people are like, oh, oh that, that's a nice testimony. 
And, you know, they give you the sort of like gentle pat on the shoulder. But let's go hear this other guy with the crazy story of the drugs and the addictions and everything else. And now understand me. Anytime Christ saves, it's a miracle. Anytime Christ saves, it's a miracle. And your story is how you met Christ personally. And we recognize, having just read the account of Saul of Tarsus being saved on the road to Damascus, that Jesus saves anyone, that he can reach anywhere no matter what. But let us not forget that there is also a blessing upon the righteous, those who do not go down the deep end, so to speak. We learn that lesson here in Acts chapter 10 from Cornelius. Look with me, verse 1. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. The first thing that jumps out to you, if you're familiar with original languages, this is a Gentile name, this is a Gentile guy. And as we read a little bit further on, it becomes clear that he is a soldier. He is a centurion in the Roman army. It says, Cornelius, a centurion of what was then known as the Italian cohort. The significance of that phrase is that uh, as the Romans conquered all of the Mediterranean world, they would routinely enlist into their legions, into their army, uh, individuals of conquered countries. To be of the Italian cohort, then, is not to be a foreign conquered uh, member of the Roman Empire who then enlisted. Rather, it's to be someone who grew up in Italy, who is Roman by birth. And uh, so to be of a specific cohort, a specific company of soldiers who are from Rome, this is a significant honor. Obviously, Cornelius has his citizenship. He is not merely uh, a subject of the empire, but he is considered a citizen of Rome. This would confer special status and privileges upon him that are not otherwise known and enjoyed by those who are not citizens. And the scripture goes on. Not only is he a centurion, and in case you're wondering, a centurion is a commander of a group of a hundred. Okay, uh, it's a group of a hundred uh, legions would would have up to 7,000 soldiers that would comprise them, but these groups were often divided into smaller units of 100 soldiers or so, and set over top of those 100 soldiers would be what was known as a centurion. So Cornelius is a man of some rank within the Roman army. It says that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. In those first two verses, there are six facts that stand out to you. And then perhaps one that you assume, but which is not true. And we'll get to that in just a second. Number one, we learn he is devout. That is, he worships God. He's devoted to God. That uh, he, he, he disciplines his life in such a way that a portion of his day, every day, is given over to spending time with the Lord. Number two, we learn that he's a, he's a, fear, a God-fearing man. It says, a devout man who feared God. So he knew who the true God was. He understood reward and punishment, blessing and shame. He understood these things. He understood it was better to stand with the Lord. Number three, we understand that he's a bit of a father. He has led his household in some capacity to also worship the Lord. It says, a devout man who feared God together with all of his household. Number four, he's generous in giving. And number five, he's constant in prayer. As the scripture concludes, he gave alms generously to all the people, and he prayed continuously to God. Now, he gave alms. In the first century, it was quite common for centurions to be wealthy. Not exorbitantly wealthy, 
but wealthier than the average Jew. And the reason for that was because as these legions were dispatched around the empire to enforce Roman law, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, they would oftentimes, by means of extortion and theft, in terms of assisting tax collectors, take money from the populace beyond what they were entitled to. And so it was common for Roman soldiers, centurions in particular, those who were higher up the food chain, to begin to amass wealth by means of extortion of the people they were intended to protect. Now, in this particular case, you might think this is Cornelius, that he can afford to give alms, but that's to miss the first two verses. He's not a wealthy man. Uh, A Roman centurion's pay was not exorbitant. It wasn't great. Uh, They made the basic bare minimum more than what the average soldier made. And of course, a man worth his salt, this is an expression that you've, you've heard, the Roman soldiers were often paid in terms of salt, the daily proportion that they were allotted. They could barter and trade with that. Centurions were given a percentage above that. So he's not a necessarily a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination. And you can't assume that he's stealing and extorting money from people because the scriptures says that he was a God-fearing man. If it were true that Cornelius were somehow wealthy, by means of extortion, by means of exacting uh, revenues from the people he's intended to serve, then the scriptures would not have suggested that he was God-fearing because he would have clearly been a thief like all other centurions. He has limited means. He has a heart for God. He has a family that he has led to also worship God. And with his limited means, he still gives generously. He still gives to the poor And he is in prayer constantly. And as the story progresses, an angel shows up. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. Peter's going to come. He's going to share the gospel with you. You're going to get saved. All that's about to take place. A number of years ago, I was at a a conference. This particular passage is is memorable to me because a number of years ago, I was at a conference, an interfaith uh, sort of conference in Dallas, Texas, and there were a number of individuals that were arguing for why all the various religions of the world really had a lot in common. And one individual from the Hindu faith stood up and began to suggest that as in Hinduism, there is this law of karma, this cycle of death and rebirth, and it's all dictated by karma, the good things we do or the bad things we do. He says there's a similar sort of idea in Christianity. And this was news to my ears because I had never heard this before. And he took us to this particular passage, Acts chapter 10 and the conversion of Cornelius. And his argument was that Cornelius that Cornelius was benefiting from good karma, that because he had given alms to the poor, and that because he was praying constantly, that Cornelius, by means of karma, had been saved. Now, is that news to you? I'm sure it is. But I wonder how many of us including this particular individual who was presenting on Hinduism, I wonder how many of us are really familiar with what Hinduism teaches or what this law of karma is really all about. 
In Hinduism, the teaching is that people need liberation from the endless cycle of reincarnation, which is known as samsara. And this cycle of reincarnation is governed by the law of karma, which is also known as the law of cause and effect. A person's individual karma is impacted by the effects of all his or her words, deeds, or actions, not only in their present life, but in all of their previous lives. Remember, there is this cycle of reincarnation, of death and rebirth. And so you live today, you do good things, you do bad things, you die. Based on what you've done, you're reincarnated, and you're either reincarnated a little bit further up the food chain, or you're reincarnated a little bit further down the food chain, as the case may be. And so liberation is what they are seeking. That is freedom from this cycle of reincarnation. Liberation, or moksha, is obtained when the individual expands his being and consciousness to an infinite level and realizes that the self, who he is or who she is, is the same as Brahman, which is their word for the deity. That is the one absolute being from which all, in the words of Hinduism, in which all multiplicity derives. Now you're all sitting there looking at me like, eh, what? Let me try and break this down for you. In Hinduism, all is one, one is all, we're all a part of this force in the universe. It's this large, impersonal sort of force. And this force has spun off a series of multiplicities, that's the word for it, Whereas you and I would speak in terms of persons or individuals, uh, Hinduism teaches in terms of these are just offshoots of the one deity, Brahman. And now these individuals, as offshoots, have made poor choices. And they need to try to reconnect, that is, become one again with the all-encompassing one. Now, to suggest then that Cornelius is having good karma is really missing the text. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Okay, good. He gives alms and he prays continually to God. You notice that? He's not meditating. He's not trying to expand his consciousness as it is, as it is described, He's not engaging in all the different yogas that are recommended within Hinduism to try to reunite or reconnect himself with the deity. Cornelius is praying, that is, he is talking to God. Cornelius is an individual. He sees himself as an individual. He's giving alms to other individuals. And aside from all of that, he is also talking to another individual. He is talking to God. Within Hinduism, the goal is to self-realize that you are God, a part of God, and a part of everyone else. And this is done through a number of different practices. Raga yoga, the path of union through meditation and mind control. Karma yoga, the path of union through work. Jnana yoga, which is the path of union through knowledge. 
and bhakti yoga, which is the path of union through love and service to others. What you need to know in all of those different yogas that are prescribed is that there is a path you are seeking towards union to become one with the thing you are already a part of. And the reason you're not doing that very well, according to Hinduism, is because you're making poor choices that don't recognize the oneness that you have with your neighbor. So you're acting in a way that is selfish or greedy. You may be stealing or other horrible things. And so the punishment for that is you reincarnate to a lower form of existence. And maybe you'll learn your lesson and you try to do better and then you can reincarnate up. And you're working your way up this food chain until eventually you land with Brahman. Now, the problem with all of this is that the reason that is given for why this is, the guru's teaching, is that the scriptures reveal this to us. They go further. They say this is all an illusion, this world we're living in, and that the reality that we're supposed to be striving to is oneness with Brahman. Now, here's the problem with karma and Hinduism in general. First off, there is a metaphysical error within Hinduism which rejects any difference within being. Okay? There is an infinite being, God, and then there are finite beings, such as you and me. And Hinduism suggests that there's no actual difference, that we're all equivalent. That's the first problem. But the real problem is that all of these suggestions towards these various forms of yoga are prescribed on the basis of trying to escape what this world is described as, which is an illusion. But here's the second problem. How does one know what is an illusion if one does not first know what is real? You're telling us that this world is an illusion and that we need to reincarnate up the food chain, but how do you know that it's an illusion? Who told you that it was an illusion? There's no messianic concept within Hinduism. There's no individual who's gone beyond the grave to the afterlife and has returned. And one would think that if it's true that we need to engage in yoga and do all these kinds of things in order to broaden our consciousness and be reunited with the divine, that at some point in time, the divine would have come and said that to us. But you don't find that within Hinduism. To suggest that Cornelius is participating in karma is to make a mistake of saying that Cornelius is the same as the God that he's praying to. And actually, that's not the case at all. But it does present an interesting question for us. Is there a form of Christian karma? Is there a form of behavior in which if we do certain things that God will look down from heaven and will repay us for those good things? Now, I'm really cringe to use the term Christian karma because within Hinduism, karma is an impersonal sort of force that's out there. And when we talk about God blessing us or God cursing us, we're not talking about someone who's impersonal. We're talking about a real individual. But it is a worthwhile question to ask of this particular text. Look with me. The angel says to him, 
He says in verse four, Cornelius stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended, notice that word, they have ascended as a memorial. Notice that word, ascended and memorial before God. The angel's statement to him is, there are a couple of things that have happened here, Cornelius. I've got good news. You're going to have to send away to Joppa to get Peter to have him come back here. And the reason you're going to be able to do this is because God has taken note of your prayers and your alms. He uses two words, ascended and memorial. If you go back and you look at the scriptures and you look at all the different times these words are used, we actually find that this is a reference to sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament, particularly described are memorial sacrifices in Leviticus chapter 1 and 2. Don't flip there, just listen. When the angel says to Cornelius, your prayers and the alms that you have been giving to people have ascended as a memorial, he's making reference to a specific type of sacrifice that is described for us in Leviticus chapter 2. Between chapters 1, 2, and 3, we have three different sacrifices that are mentioned in the book of Leviticus. The first is the uh, sacrifice, the burnt offering, which was the sacrifice of atonement. It was to be offered morning and evening every day. And the meaning behind this sacrifice was that Israel as a nation had sinned, we had all sinned, and God has to deal with our sin by executing justice on an innocent. And so a lamb or or a bull is put in the place of the individual or the nation who has committed the sin, and then, of course, that animal is sacrificed. The second sacrifice that is mentioned is the grain offering or the cereal offering. Now, the burnt offering is an aromatic offering. It is described in terms of its smoke ascending up into heaven. And the same is true of the grain offering. It is also considered an aromatic offering. Whereas the burnt offering would have been a lamb or a bull or something to that effect, the grain offering consisted of grain mixed with incense and oil. You would take some of your wheat and you'd mix it with incense and oil and you would offer it, and then that would ascend. The smoke from that would ascend up into heaven. This is the offering that is described as a memorial offering. This is an offering that is described as catching God's attention, putting him in remembrance. Now, you're sitting here and you're thinking, what is so significant about this offering? The book of Leviticus is written by Moses at a time in which Israel is living a very nomadic lifestyle. They're traveling from A to B. They are engaged in the wilderness wanderings. How many farms do you think they have at this point? They don't have many farms. They don't have any farms. How much time do you think they have to set aside for planting crops, for harvesting and gathering together wheat and stacking it in barns? Well, guess what? They don't have time for any of that. When Israel gets wheat, it's because they have found somebody around who has planted a wheat field and they've engaged in a series of bartering and trading. To have bread in the nation of Israel during the wilderness wanderings is a delicacy. And so what the scriptures are describing here is when you take something like wheat, which is a precious commodity, particularly at this time in Israel's history, and you sacrifice it to the Lord, you mix it with the incense and all this, it is described as a memorial offering. You are taking something that is precious to you and you are giving it to God. And it 
follows right after the burnt offering. In the burnt offering, God takes away your sin. In the grain offering, you are offering back to God the devotion which he is entitled to, having rescued you from your sin, having pardoned you from your sin. And this grain offering, within the idea of the covenant of Israel, is said to draw God's attention in the sense that you're pledging your loyalty to him as he has already given himself to you. This is followed by the third offering, which is known as the shalom offering or the peace offering. Within this offering, it was commonly offered if there was a sickness, some form, some form of disease, if something had really happened that was tragic, they would offer a peace offering. And this Hebrew word shalom is to be understood as more than just not being at war with anyone. True peace is to be happy, to be healthy, and most importantly, to be at peace with God. So within these three aromatic offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering, we have here the grain offering described as a memorial, something that you give to God which causes him to remember you. Now, this is incredibly helpful for us. God isn't like us in the sense that he forgets. It's not like he needs to be reminded, oh, right, that's right, Josh, he's one of my guys. I, I, I forgot. There are times in which I live in such a way that I think he might have forgotten. He might be compelled to say, I really wish this guy wasn't with my team. No, I'm just joking. Lord knows who belongs to him and who doesn't, and he doesn't need to be reminded. The fact that this offering is given to us in the book of Leviticus is a means by which God is showing his people that he does, in fact, remember them, that he does, in fact, take notice of their worship, and that his eyes are indeed upon them. Coming back to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the angel says to Cornelius, your prayers, that is, those those long, long conversations that you have offered up in the quiet of the night or in the early morning, talking to God, and the way in which you have given alms to the poor, the way in which you have looked after those who are less fortunate to you, these things have gone up into heaven. They have ascended, using the exact same language as the aromatic offering in the book of Leviticus, these things have ascended into heaven and God has taken note of this. He says it has ascended to the Lord as a memorial. In other words, God has noticed that you have done this and guess what? Good news. God wants you to send away to Joppa to find a guy named Peter. Something really great is about to happen. Now, is this Christian karma? You couldn't in any sense call it karma because karma is an impersonal force. It's just a law of cause and effect. Cornelius, just like you and just like me, though he is a righteous man, 
does not by any means deserve salvation. If we all were to really live in karma, if we were going to say that there is such a thing as Christian karma, the reality is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no second chance. There's no reincarnation. But if we were to just be subject to the law, then all that we deserve is punishment. All that we deserve is judgment. What we find in the Christian faith is not karma, not some impersonal law of cause and effect. What we find is grace. And we find grace administered by, not by an impersonal force, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. To hope in karma is crazy, church. Christ is king. We look at this, and it's clear that having worshipped the Lord, having given alms, having prayed, that the Lord saw this and that there was now a blessing coming to Cornelius for his faithfulness to the Lord. It is clear that the Lord sees good behavior and he sees bad behavior. It is clear that God punishes bad behavior and it is clear that he rewards good behavior. This is not some impersonal karma, some impersonal law of, what, of cause and effect. This is God in heaven looking down and noticing his creatures, noticing his people. I'll give you three verses. Hebrews chapter 6. Don't flip there, just listen. The author of Hebrews writing to these, these Jews in Jerusalem says, though we speak in this way, and he's talking about the fact that he's really worried about these guys. He thinks they're backsliding. He says, though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He says, we are confident you guys are saved. He says, next statement he makes after he says that, he says, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name. Now, did you notice that? The author of Hebrews is saying, I am confident that you guys are indeed Christians, that you are on the right path. And he bases that on the fact that God himself, whatever struggles this congregation is having, whatever difficulties they're going through, he says, I am confident of this based on the fact that God is a just God. He is a good God. He is not unjust so as to ignore and forget all the times that you have worked for him and all the times that you have shown love for his name. What are we to take away from that verse? Simply this, that God does not forget. That God absolutely does have favor for those who will love him and honor his name. There is, in fact, a blessing that comes as a result to all of us who will honor the Lord. Specifically in the case of Cornelius, he's giving alms to the poor. Two Proverbs that Cornelius undoubtedly had read and was familiar with. Proverbs 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. The sage is saying in the book of Proverbs, 
if you discount the poor person, you're thumbing your nose at the one who created him. Now, Hinduism will look at that and say, you see, we're all just a part of this one giant thing, and we're all one, and we need to expand our consciousness. But that, again, misses the thrust of the text. The poor person's an individual, you're an individual, and God's an individual. But God cares for the people that he has created. If you take care of the needy, you honor the Lord. This is undoubtedly a verse that Cornelius had heard. And so whenever he would encounter individuals there uh, within, his, within his city, undoubtedly out of, as an act of worship and devotion to the Lord, he would do what he could to take care of them. Second, second, second proverb, Proverbs 19.17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. I'm reminded of that passage in Matthew where Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. You will hate one and you will love the other. And he goes on, he says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will wear, what you will eat, the clothes and all this kind of stuff. He says, consider the lilies of the field. I tell you, Solomon was not dressed as splendidly as this grass here in the field, which is alive today and thrown in the oven and burned tomorrow. And he says, consider the birds in the air. They don't have barns. They don't have means of storing up you know, wealth. They literally just go day to day. And what they need to eat today, they get it today. And he says, but not one of those sparrows falls from the sky without your father knowing about it. And he, uses, he makes those two illustrations, and then he says, you are of much more value to your Father in heaven than the birds or the grass. When Cornelius is walking down the street and he sees people in need, though he has never yet met Jesus, though he has never yet heard his Lord's teaching, on how you can worship him by caring for the poor and the needy. He has nevertheless heard of the one true God. He has nevertheless become acquainted with the scriptures, the Old Testament. And he is, with that knowledge, engaging in what the scriptures describe as almsgiving, which is religious giving to the poor. He is nevertheless praying and asking God to care, probably for these people that he's trying to support, as well as his own household. And the word testifies to us that Jesus sees this from heaven and he rewards it. A number of years ago, I was grade six. And there was a girl walking in between classes, going from one portable to the next. And it had been raining that day and some boys had been running past her and had been really mean and had hit the books out of her arms so that her books had fallen in the mud. And of course, we only had three minutes to change between classes. You're on, you're on a firm clock. You got to run. And I had seen that happen and I'd seen as she was struggling to gather up all of her things from the mud. And I went over and I helped her pick her things up. And she was just so irate. She was like, man, I can't believe those guys did that to me. You know, she's really angry at them. 
And being a grade six boy and not really knowing what to say, I was just trying to encourage her. And I said to her, you know, though, like, there's a time coming in which the Lord will do good to everyone who does good, and the Lord will judge everyone who does evil. You know, and they'll get what's coming to them in due time. And she looked at me and she said, I don't believe that. <laughs> so I'm like helping her. I'm like, oh, well, I'm here helping you believing that. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to help you out with that idea in my mind. And she said to me, I don't believe in God. And she says, you know what? People do bad things all the time and they get away with it. Nothing bad is ever going to happen to them. And she went away to her class and I went away to my class and that was the end of that conversation but it stood with me and it's still with me to this day all these years later. How do you live in a world if you don't believe in a God that sees you, that cares for you and that desires that you care for others? You, if you reject all of that then you can't help but become rather fatalistic like this little girl did. If you reject all of that, you can't help but notice that you have no real hope. As I'm sitting here speaking to you this morning, some of you are going to hear this sermon and immediately your mind is going to swing all the way over to the legalistic side of things where you're going to say, it's a a quid pro quo. We do good and we get rewarded and we have to do good, otherwise God's going to judge us and all this. Some of you will swing that way. And what I want you to understand is that while it is true that there is a blessing for the righteous, no amount of righteous deeds that we do will ever, ever satisfy God's requirement. The blessing that Cornelius gets for all his righteous almsgiving and for all his prayers, the blessing that Cornelius gets is that he is given a vision and told in the midst of that vision that he needs to send to Joppa for a guy named Peter in order that he can learn about how God has actually given him in grace all the righteousness that he will ever need by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. You see, at the end of the day, despite all of Cornelius' almsgiving, despite all of his prayers, Cornelius, righteous man though he is, and undoubtedly though there is a blessing coming to him for his righteousness, despite all of that, Cornelius isn't good enough to make it to heaven. Cornelius is not going to be righteous enough to stand before the Lord. A number of years ago, I got my hair cut at a barbershop in Dallas, inner city. I went in. There was a sign on the wall that said, We trust in God. All others pay cash. I'm sure some of you can recall signs like that. It basically saying, Your Interact card doesn't work here. Your credit card, we don't care. You can write all the checks in the world. We're not going to accept any of that. We don't trust you. We want cold, hard cash. So the sign on the wall would say, We trust in God but you're going to pay for your haircut today. All right? That's what they were saying. And a lot of times when we approach God, we think, I can earn favor with him. Now, don't miss the point. God rewards righteousness, but you could never earn real favor with God. 
You could never earn your way to heaven, which is why Cornelius must still send to Joppa for one named Peter in order to hear about Jesus. And you today, though you, sir or ma'am, may in fact be a good person, though you undoubtedly support philanthropic causes here in town, perhaps giving to the United Way or Mustard Seed, though you undoubtedly give to Food Bank or other organizations such as the Pregnancy Care Center, all of that being a good thing to do does not, does not bring salvation. Only Jesus can save. And Jesus saves you by dying on the cross in your place the blessing that any of us might have for any of the good works that we do can only be the blessing, not of somehow one-upping the guy next to us, not somehow making ourselves more righteous, relatively speaking, as we compare ourselves one to another. The blessing that Cornelius knows and receives for his righteousness is the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ. And that is, in fact, the greatest blessing that any of us could ever pursue. I think perhaps one of the uh, most beautiful introductions to a book that I've ever read, one of the most significant and effective, I find it to be a really unusual preface to a particular book. Bear with me, some of you guys, this, I might lose you. It's the 1516 edition. That's the year 1516 the 1516 edition of the Textus Receptus, the original sort of published Greek New Testament, 1516, put together by a number of scholars, most notable among them one named Erasmus. Erasmus wrote these words in the introduction to the Textus Receptus, 1516. These holy pages, talking of the Bible, will summon the living image of his mind. They will give you Christ himself. Talking, healing, dying, rising, the whole Christ in a word. They will give him to you in an intimacy so close that he would be less visible to you if He stood before your very eyes. And I've always been captured by that statement. That through the word of God, we can know Jesus so personally, so intimately. We can become so familiar with his mind and what he thinks and how he works. That if he were to stand right in front of us, we wouldn't be able to see it as clearly as what he's already given to us in his word. I marvel at that statement. Because if you look at all of the other world's religions, you can have their form of salvation without necessarily having their leader. For example, you can have Confucianism without Confucius. If you just gather together all of the maxims of ancient Chinese culture, you can have Confucianism without without having ever met 
Confucius. You can have Hinduism without their pundits and their Mahatmas and their gurus and their sages. You can have Christian science without Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. Yes, that's her whole name, all of those names. You don't need Confucius to have Confucianism. You don't need Mary Baker Eddy to have Christian science. You don't need the gurus to have Hinduism. But when it comes to Christianity, you must have Christ or you do not have Christianity. This is why this idea of Christian karma is so repulsive to me. We're not talking about an impersonal force. We're talking about a personal Savior. We're not talking about some law of cause and effect. The law that stipulates cause and effect consigns all of us to an eternity. We're talking about Jesus who can save us from our sins. That's who we're talking about. The Christian faith is Jesus. It is the Lord. And the Christian faith for you and me, what it amounts to is loving the Lord. If you're here today and you don't know Christ or you don't love Christ, my encouragement to you is you just don't know what you're missing. Don't leave here today without, without meeting him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your son, for giving us the Lord, for giving us blessing beyond blessing in knowing the Lord, in knowing Christ. Father, we recognize that your eyes do rest upon the righteous, that you do bestow favor and blessing to those who do what is just and who act in accordance with your word. We, we recognize that, but at the same time, Lord, we recognize that we are all lawbreakers, that we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory, O oh Lord, and yet you still show us kindness and mercy by sending your Son. You show us kindness and mercy by calling us to know him and to walk with him. And I pray, Lord, that as we are gathered here this morning, that you would, again, by your spirit, through your word, call your people to continue knowing Christ and walking with him. We pray these things in Jesus' name.